Welcome to the Why They Are So Angry podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Carol Francois, a proud baby boomer with over 30 years experience as an educator and learning leader. And I'm Courtney Square, your resident first generation millennial. Join us as we present an unvarnished look at systemic racism in America throughout history and up to modern times. We invite you to pull up a chair, put in your earbuds, and allow us to enlighten, educate, and explore the real reasons why Black African Americans are so angry. Because until you know the whole history, it isn't American history at all. It's election time, Courtney, and we're here to tell everyone that the old demon systemic racism is deeply ingrained in the American political system, particularly in the area of voting rights. Well, I feel like I'm in some sort of multiverse with our last episode about presidents behaving badly. This is like a crossover event. We went from elections. Now we're talking about voting. And this time it's going to be about how it's been denied and weaponized. Mm-hmm. You are right. Now, we did a little digging into the ACLU website, an August 2020 report by ABC News, a 2016 Washington Post article about voter suppression, as well as some of our favorite history books to get a look at voting rights in America. Historically, things didn't and still don't look good for Black African Americans when it comes to voting. Now, we, and I say millennials, we hear it all the time. People die for your right to vote. Women vote. We have suffrage. And that's wonderful. And I do vote, as should you. But a lot of times, Black African Americans feel like, my vote doesn't count. Nothing seems to change. But your vote does matter. And the fact that it's fought against so hard should let you know that. Now, let's talk about three constitutional amendments that were crucial to this discussion about voting. After the Civil War, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment parts uh, were added to the Constitution and Congressional Reconstruction began. They were designed to ensure equality for African Americans in the South. Okay, so let's take each one of these. The 13th Amendment, ratified in 1865, abolished slavery and indentured servitude. But you remember from our episodes on the criminal justice system, slavery has not been abolished for people convicted of crimes. So we still see instances of forced labor in American prisons today. And I'm sure that might come up again when it comes to voting. So listeners, put a pin in that. The 14th Amendment, ratified in 1868, gave African Americans equal protection under the laws. However, it wasn't until the 15th Amendment, ratified in 1870s, in the 18 in 1870, that states were prohibited from disenfranchising voters on account of race or previous condition of servitude. Okay, you're exactly right. But the 15th Amendment did not provide automatic voting rights for African Americans. Congress did not provide enforcement for the 15th Amendment immediately. And get this, Tennessee was the last state to formally ratify the amendment in 1997. Now, I graduated in two, that was three years before I graduated from high school. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Now, voting rights were also denied to those convicted of crimes through felon disenfranchisement law. laws. By 1870, 28 states had adopted a version of these laws by prohibiting convicted felons the right to vote. Some states still enact these laws. According to the American Civil Liberties Union, only two states, Maine and Vermont, give everyone the uninhibited right to vote. Three states currently disenfranchise felons from voting permanently. That's Iowa, Kentucky, and Virginia. Well, apparently, even though a felon serves his or her time, they are still punished afterwards by being limited in many ways, including voter eligibility. That's right. Mass incarceration is actually a form of voter suppression. It dates all the way back to the Jim Crow era, a patchwork patchwork of state felony and even sometimes misdemeanor convictions keep about 5.85 million Americans from voting. Well, back to non-felons and their right to vote. In spite of the constitutional protections after Reconstruction, voter suppression swung into high gear. Poll taxes discouraged those who could not afford to pay from voting, and there were a pre and it was a prerequisite to register to vote in Jim Crow states. Poll taxes disproportionately affected Black voters, a large portion of the antebellum South. Poll taxes continued into the 20th century. As of 1964, Alabama, Arkansas, Mississippi, Texas, and Virginia still had poll taxes. And Courtney, a friend of mine, actually showed me a photograph of her grandmother's poll tax receipt. It was quite a way to disenfranchise people. But here's another way. Literacy tests were also implemented to stop those who were uneducated from participating in the voting process. These were administered at the discretion of those in charge of voter registration and often discriminated against Black African Americans. Literacy tests asked civics questions such as, in which document or writing is the Bill of Rights found? Or... Name two of the purposes of the U.S. Constitution. Now imagine how unfair this was to have descendants of of the enslaved who have not been allowed to learn to read or write have to answer questions like this. There are people today that probably couldn't answer those questions. Now some testers went even so far as to ask potential voters how many bubbles were in a bar of soap. Uh, That is horrible. (laughs) Ridiculous. That was that's super super petty and ridiculous. But white men who could not pass these literacy tests were able to vote due to a grandfather clause, allowing them to participate in voting if their grandfathers voted by 1867. I'm sure there was no list of grandfathers, so they just had to take them at their word. But that grandfather clause stood until it was ruled unconstitutional in 1915. It wasn't until much later in the 20th century when poll taxes were abolished, like we stated in 1964, with the 24th Amendment and literacy tests were outlawed under the Voter Rights Act of 1965. Now, in addition to bizarre requirements like these, threats of violence and death were also waged against Black African Americans who attempted to vote. 
in August 1922, the Topeka State Journal reported that members of the Ku Klux Klan reportedly flew over Oklahoma City, dropping cards into black neighborhoods, warning people to be cautious before heading to the polls. And that's why when we hear things like people say, watch your poll location, or we're going to have people watching you, that drugs up fear in a lot of Black African Americans, because it's not all in our minds. It's true. It happened. Yes, it did. And that situation in Topeka was by no means an isolated incident. I believe you have a story to illustrate what Black African Americans who dared to vote faced. I do. Now, I read the book, The Hunger Games, a long time ago. It was a dystopian book, but there was a tyrannical president by the name of Cornelius Snow who oppressed a large amount of the country. Now, when these groups began to fight back, he said a quote that says, hope is a dangerous thing. Mm -hmm. Now, after Black African Americans were freed, they were given hope. They could vote, they were protected under the law, and they were free. Now, upon realizing this, Southern state governments quickly went to work altering their state constitutions to disenfranchise Black citizens and codify a racial hierarchy, effectively making Black people second-class citizens. From 1885 to 1908, all 11 former Confederate states rewrote their constitution with one goal, to destroy the black vote. Mm. They used their state government and the law to make black people second-class citizens. If you don't believe me, believe the words of John B. Knox. He was an Alabama lawyer and the president of the state's constitutional convention. In 1904, he said in the speech, if we would have white supremacy, we must establish it by the law, not by force and not by fraud. Now, where the law failed, fear, violence and intimidation stepped right on in. Groups like the KKK and also regular citizens made it their purpose to scare and threaten black voters. The Equal Justice Initiative has documented at least 12 large-scale massacres in Louisiana, Alabama, Texas, Tennessee, Mississippi, and South Carolina between 1872 and 1876. Many of them, if not all, were targeted at politically active African Americans. Well, to me, to quote Hope, is feeling pretty dangerous right about now. Very dangerous. But fear not, listeners, fear not, true believers. All hope is not lost. Between 1870 and 1871, the Congress passed what's known as the Enforcement Acts, and some historians call them the Ku Klux Klan Acts. It was, there were acts signed by Ulysses S. Grant and it protected black people's right to vote, hold office and serve on juries. Well, I'm feeling hopeful again. I'm feeling hopeful. Hold on to that hope. (laughs) Okay. Now we stated earlier that these were a part of the 14th and 15th amendment because the political climate in the South was changing. 
Blacks were being put in the local office and they were showing their voting power. And the Republican Party of the 1870s knew if they wanted to control the South, they had to ally with Black voters. Now, what these in KKK acts or enforcement acts mean is that if a state, if if Black people could prove that the state was infringing upon or groups were infringing upon their right to vote, the federal government could step in. So it gave the 14th and 15th Amendment teeth. But sadly, the story I have to tell you today is how those teeth were ripped out one by one. Mm, once again, rights are about to be thwarted. They are. And sadly, this leaves Black African Americans open to be unprotected from the death grip of Jim Crow. Now, it starts in March of 1873, and tension was running thick between Southern Democrats, who were mostly former slave masters and Confederates, and the Republican Party, radical whites from the North and South, and former slaves. Now, in April of 1873, in Colfax County, Louisiana, Republican candidate William Kellogg had run for governor and won. He started to fill appointments in local parish offices going about his gubernatorial duties. Now, his opponent, John McHenry, and his supporters were having none of that. They vowed revenge, holding a meeting at John McHenry's home to come up with a plan. A now, plan? Now, hold on. This man's duly elected as governor. He should be able to appoint people. Well, apparently the people at that meeting said, nay, nay, I say. Now, on March 28th, this group of, of McHenry supporters, local Confederates, and the Ku Klux Klan, and a lot of those were crossing, so it wasn't, <laughs> a lot of those people were three in the same. Uh created an insurgent army called the White League. Hmm. Now, I read comic books, and that just sounds like a group of evil Avengers. Total supervillain vibes coming from there. Their goal was to overthrow the state government, kill Black voters, and run federal troops and white Republicans out of town by any My means goodness. necessary. Wow, this sounds a little like the plotting that was discovered recently against the governor of Michigan. Mm. I was doing the research for this story, and that news story flashed on my screen. It's kismet. Now, on April the 1st, the Republicans responded by urging their mostly Black supporters to defend themselves, to take up arms. It's their constitutional right. So an all-Black militia was formed. They armed themselves with the goal of defending the government and the courthouse. Now, the two sides, the Black militia and the White League, faced off on April the 4th, or April the 1st, I'm sorry. Nothing happened, so I could assume it was hot and a lot of yelling, but nothing happened. Now, on April the 13th, Easter Sunday, Easter Sunday, hmm. 300 members of the White League returned to the defendant courthouse and began to fire on the militia. Now, in response, the White League revealed they had brought a cannon. A cannon? A this cannon. Is, oh my gosh, it's war. It is all out war. And that was their goal. They were 
trained military soldiers, they were ready for war. Now, when the black militia saw the cannon, they, some of them threw up white flags and waved or put their hands up and gave themselves to their captors. But the violence did not stop. Now, the so-called military leader of the White League was a man by James Haddon. Now, he had gotten shot, but it wasn't by the militia. It was one of his own men. Now, he freaked out, and it looked like he had been shot, so he just started screaming. Shots went everywhere. Now, the captured prisoners in the hands of the White League were being killed and hung one by one as bullets were flying and people were running. It was indiscriminate killing. Now, African-Americans who had not been at the courthouse, uh, at the courthouse ran out into the night for fear for their lives. Now, this, uh, this massacre, known as the Colfax Massacre, was the most violent in Reconstruction. Numbers vary between 60 to 150 to 300 African-Americans being killed. Now, President Grant got the news, you know, telegrams and all that and sent more federal troops and of course he was ready to enact those kkk acts those enforcement acts but sadly our story doesn't end with the cavalry arriving oh well this sounds like out and out war on american soil and Courtney, Courtney, my imagination is running wild thinking about what happens next. So let's take a break right now and, and um, you know, we'll get back at it. Okay, we're back. But before you finish, I want to remind our listeners that if they want to take a deeper dive into understanding systemic racism in America, they can go to our website, www.whyaretheysoangry.com, for more information and to take our course, Systemic Racism, See It, Say It, Confront It. And if you like our podcast, please subscribe, leave a comment, and consider giving us a five-star rating. All righty. I'm ready, and I hope our listeners are ready to find out what happens next in Colfax. Well, the federal troops have arrived. The cavalry's here, and the actual governor takes back control of the government. Now, 97 men were arrested and charged under the Enforcement Acts of 1870. Now, the lawyers for the victims believed that they had a better chance of just convicting the ringleaders on conspiracy instead of charging everyone with murder because they would do that in heavily democratic states that were not going to be friendly to the cause. Now, that plan completely backfired. The defendants appealed the conspiracy case, and it went all the way up to the Supreme Court, the highest court in the land in 1876. Now, the justices not only overturned the lower court's conviction of conspiracy, it ruled that the Enforcement Acts only applied to actions by the state, not individual. Individuals. Well, that, I don't get this. That just doesn't make sense. But again, I wasn't living in 1876. It makes no sense. But this is even, it goes even deeper. This ruling essentially neutered the federal government's power to prosecute hate crimes. Without the threat of being tried for treason against the federal government, 
white supremacists now only had to look for loopholes. As long as you weren't threatening America itself and just individual people and were not acting as an agent of the state, you could never be brought up on the enforcement acts. My, 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 my. This just gets worse as we go. This has repercussions all the way up to now. All the way up to now. So as a kid watching all these civil rights movies, I always wondered why could these people do whatever they wanted? Because they were acting as individuals. Mm-hmm. Now, to add insult to injury, the Colfax massacre was remembered by Black people in Louisiana and Colfax County, but they knew it as a massacre. In 1920, a monument was erected for the Colfax riot, and it was to honor the three white men who were killed in the riot. The story that was spun was that this was the day that the valiant white men of Colfax County took their county back from from the tyrannical rule of carpetbaggers. I'm I'm just floored. These people ended up, the people who basically fomented this revolution, they came out as the heroes. And And they got a a monument. Talk about justice denied as as for those black African-American militia who were massacred and died for the right to vote. They aren't even remembered. Well, as they say, the victor writes the history. And that is why that plaque still stands to this very day. To this day. Well, those militia people, those men were trying to defend the right to vote. And obviously it took a lot of guts to try to vote in those days. It definitely did. But it isn't just a distant past. People face violence and death for attempting to vote uh, all the time. The Southern Poverty Law Center Civil Rights Memorial includes hundreds of names of individuals who lost their lives in the struggle for freedom during the modern civil rights movement of 1954 to 1968. Yes, yes. People like James Earl Cheney, Andrew Goodman, and Michael Henry Schwerner, young civil rights workers who in 1964 were arrested by a deputy sheriff and then released into the hands of Klansmen who had plotted their murders. They were shot and their bodies buried in an earthen dam. Another example is Jonathan Myrick Daniels, an an Episcopal seminary student in Boston who had come to Alabama in 1965 to help with black voter, voter registration in Lowndes County. He was arrested at a demonstration, jailed in Hainville, and then suddenly released. Moments after his release, he was shot to death by a deputy sheriff. Mm. It's, it took so much courage for people to register to vote and to vote in the 60s. So, and Carol, let's talk about what, what was put in place in the mid-20th century to ensure voting rights for Black African Americans. Well, Courtney, the most significant piece of legislation that was intended to address systemic racism in voting was the 1965 Voting Rights Act. The Voting Rights Act of 1965, signed into law by President Lyndon B. Johnson, 
aim to overcome legal barriers at the state and local levels that prevented Black African Americans from exercising their right to vote as guaranteed under the 15th Amendment in the Constitution. The Voting Rights Act is considered one of the most far-reaching pieces of civil rights legislation in United States history. A very important piece of legislation, but keep in mind We're going to learn something about that piece of legislation soon. Now, the act banned the use of literacy tests. It provided for federal oversight of voter registration in areas where less than 50% of the non-white population had not registered to vote. And it authorized the U.S. Attorney General to investigate the use of poll taxes in state and local elections. But a little bit more was needed. So in 1964, the 24th Amendment made poll taxes illegal in federal federal elections. Poll taxes in state elections were banned in 1966 by the U.S. Supreme Court. So this is all well and good. But in June 2013, in a decision known as Shelby County versus Holder, the U.S. Supreme Court struck down the coverage formula used for Section 5 of the VRA. Now, that section is the part that would require jurisdictions with significant histories of voter registration to do something called pre-clear any new voting practices or procedures. In other words, they had to get federal approval from the Department of Justice and show that they did not have a discriminatory purpose or effect. Now, getting rid of Section 5 was a major blow to the act. However, the decision did not strike down Section 5 itself, leaving it to Congress to devise a new coverage formula. The ACLU is working with Congress to do just that. And what they've come up with, along with other legislators, is the Bipartisan Voting Rights Advancement Act. It's also known as the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, Advancement Act. Remember, Congressman Lewis was the congressman who was beaten uh, badly and continued to march for voting rights. Now, it's been introduced in both the Senate and the House, and now it's awaiting approval in the Senate. Now, the Advancement Act responds to the court's directive and provides key protections against voting discrimination to compensate for the loss of that preclearance requirement. So what can listeners do to work toward eliminating systemic racism in the American electoral process? In addition to working to get out the vote through voter registration and actually voting, you can urge your U.S. Senator to move forward to to approve the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, both to honor Congressman Lewis, but also importantly to ensure the safety of voting for all Americans. Well, Courtney, my dear niece, there's so much to talk about when it comes to voting in America. So in our next episode, We'll talk about how voter suppression is rearing its ugly head today as a result of that Supreme Court ruling, Shelby County versus Holder decision. 
Well, I can't wait, but listeners, if you miss us between now and then, you can always visit us on Facebook at Why Are They So Angry, on Instagram at Why Are They So Angry, on Twitter at W-A-T-S-A underscore online, and of course at our website, whyarethesoangry.com, where you can take the course, Systemic Racism, See It, Say It, Confront It. That brings today's episode to a close. We hope you join us next time when we continue providing the answer to the question, why are they so angry? As always, we hope you learn something so you can see it, say it, and confront it.